This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast, and I am your host for this episode, Paul Jaisley, filling in for Mike Rappin. And I'm joined by two wonderful people who both love comics, Brian Murray. Hello. And Kara Zimborski. Hello. And this is our special monthly Goodreads episode where we read the book of the month picked by our Goodreads group. Speaking of which, we're doing a giveaway on our Goodreads group right now. We're giving away a $10 Comixology gift card, and all you have to do is go to our Goodreads group, find the giveaway thread, and comment on it with your favorite comic book character. The catch is, though, February 28th is the last day to do that. So if you're listening to this episode the day it went up, Wednesday, February 28th, go do that right now and uh, try to win a $10 gift card from Comixology. Beautiful. That being said, let's jump into the week that was. Let's talk about the comics that we read this week. We'll start with you, Kara. What did you read? I went back in time to the 60s to check out a classic of DC Comics. We'd call Dead Man a C-lister or a (laughs) D-lister. I feel like, like I know about him because of his appearances on the Justice League animated show from the early 2000s. But I also mm-hmm. feel like maybe not every DC fan or every comics fan knows who Dead Man is. So I read Dead Man Book One, which is a trade that collects the first few issues that Dead Man appeared in back in 1967 in the Strange Adventures anthology. And uh, Neil Adams did the art after the first issue, which was Carmine Infantino. And then um, Jack Miller and Arnold Drake did the scripts. And they, what I liked about reading this in trade form is that they had some written intros explaining the birth of the character and basically how they just wanted to create a character that could kind of carry this anthology title. And they also wanted to capitalize on the Eastern mysticism thing Hmm. that was going on in the late 60s that people were into so they basically dead man is the world's greatest aerialist boston brand he's uh, like on the high wires and on the trapeze at a circus and in the very first issue he dies but he doesn't quite (laughs) totally die because what deity did they use ramakushna brings him back Mm-hmm. And says, you can stay kind of on this mortal plane until you figure out who killed you. And so Dead Man kind of starts his life as soon as he dies because he starts to realize his powers. He can possess the bodies of the living and he kind of hops from body to body and like just tracks people down trying to figure out who killed him. And on the way, he stops other crimes that are going on. And this book is like, If I had to pick one word to describe it, it would be testosterone because it's basically (laughs) just a series of excuses to depict lots of fist fights (laughs) and and to have lots of men being like, I'll protect you, little lady, or you need a man around. So I'm like, (laughs) okay. But I really love Dead Man as a character. And it was just like, I only really know the modern interpretations of him where he's like a little more wisecracky and a little less like gruff and tough Mm -hmm. and so it was super interesting to go back to see his origin story um and another part that was interesting is so in this in this uh volume they had all the original art from 
67, except the second issue was repenned by Neil Adams in 2001, and the art style is completely different, but the script is the same, and it really threw me off. That's very strange. Yeah. Yeah. It was very weird. It was like this issue about a biker gang, and just everyone looks like super late 90s and burly, but the script is very late 60s. So. <laughs> That's interesting interesting i'll have to check that out as a fan of weird 60s dc comics that sounds right up my alley oh yeah no definitely worth a look it's just it's so 60s <laughs> my only question is what dc has against acrobats because uh <laughs> we also had oh, the no. flying graysons who were murdered acrobats <laughs> <laughs> uh, i'm not saying that there's a pattern there but you know i mean i think that if we have you know one more dead tumbler then You've got, I think you're totally right. You've got a cereal yeah. on your hands. I didn't even hands. make that connection. <laughs> well, Brian, what did you read this week? Uh, this week, I went ahead and I finally caught up on my backlog. I read issue number two of Maxwell's Demons by friend of the show, Dennis Camp. Uh, still weird. Still good. I really enjoyed <laughs> this issue. It doesn't hold your hand, really. There's a lot of stuff that you kind of have to pick up from what's going on, but... I didn't feel like there was anything that wasn't there. You know, it didn't it didn't count on you having even read the first issue, really. <laughs> um, there are th- there's the ending makes more sense if you've read the first issue, but I think that anybody who just picked up issue two off the shelf could read it and enjoy it. I also read Runaways number six. It's a fun book, you know, it's as as superhero books go, it's definitely a lot more silly, and I enjoy that because I think that a lot of superhero books take themselves too seriously. This one, for instance, featured psychic attack cats. Naturally. Or uh, controlled by <laughs> a character's grandmother. Okay. They, they were promptly uh, herded out of a window where they jumped to the ground, presumably safely. And then we're just kind of off screen eaten by a dinosaur. We don't see that happen, but we are given proof that it took place. <laughs> okay, I, I'm cautiously curious about how that proof is demonstrated. Oh, it's a hairball. That, uh, the dinosaur coughs oh, okay. up a hairball. <laughs> okay. Uh, I also read Vengeance Nevada, number one, by B.J. Mendelson. It's on Comixology. Um, I don't believe that there's like an official... I don't know if, if B.J. is working with a publisher to get it put out, or if this is sort of a, a passion project. Um, but it's a really weird, interesting, sort of like alternate earth mystery action sort of book with maybe aliens. Uh, I, I think that issue one left me with more questions than answers, but I'm definitely curious, you know, there's references to these sort of like the animated corpses of an alien species that the main character fought while she was in the military in Afghanistan, or I think she was in the military. <laughs> um, it's it put forward a lot of really interesting ideas, and I'm curious to see where they go. Well, reanimated alien corpses is definitely an intriguing idea. So, yeah, for sure. Paul, what about you? What did you read? <laughs> um, I caught up on some trades that I had purchased a while back. Um, one of which was "I Am Not Okay with This," which is a new book by Charles Forsman. Um, who, of course, did The End of the Fucking World and Revenger. This was originally published as a series of mini-comics he did for his Patreon supporters, but Fantagraphics published it as a sort of a standalone OGN. 
it's similar in style and tone to the end of the fucking world where you have this teenager named Sydney who's trying to navigate her place in the world, um, trying to understand her, her sexuality as it emerges. And then she also has this uh, superpower, although super might not be the best descriptor since it kind of causes more problems than it solves, but she has like these mental abilities. So it's kind of like the saddest possible X-Men story. Um, so you have someone with uh, a teenager with psychic abilities, but no one to talk to about it. Um, the ending is a total like kick to the gut in a way that I wasn't expecting. So I don't know if overall really worked for me, but I, I really love the way Charles Forsman, the pacing of his stories, the way he captures sort of teenage angst and directionlessness. And he does it really well in this book. So I enjoyed it overall. I also read Spy Seal, The Court and Steel Phoenix by Rich Tommaso. Um, Rich Tommaso did uh, Dark Corridor and She-Wolf. And what's interesting about those books is that Tommaso's drawing style is very cartoony. It was very loose and fluid, a lot of bright primary colors to it. And that was always in tension with the tone of the book. Um, Dark Corridor was like a hard-boiled crime story. She-Wolf was about a teenage werewolf. But this book, Spy Seal, is exactly what the title implies, an anthropomorphic seal who's a secret agent for the British uh, MI5. And it's obviously an homage to, like, um, European comics like Tintin, like comics from, like, the uh, mid-century. And Tommaso's art style is, like, really tightened up, a lot of really cool creative cartooning and, like, action sequences in this. And even, like, the the trade collection is a bit oversized and designed to look like a Tintin book. So it's kind of like a nice um, homage to that type of style. I really, really enjoyed it overall. And then I read uh, Redlands number 6 by Jordi Belair and Vanessa Del Rey. This is the last issue in the first volume of Redlands. Um, is another perfect issue. This is a straight-up, just cathartic revenge story, and that's really what this series has been about, and I really enjoyed that sort of finality to the finish of this first volume. Can't wait to see what Bel Air and Delray have in store for the next volume, which I think is a couple months down the road. So, overall, great stuff to read. I, for some reason, spaced on Redlands, but I love Jordi Belair's work, so I think I'm going to have to put that trade on my tra- trade waiting list yeah it's uh, i'm actually very excited to go back and reread the whole thing as a as a big chunk um just to experience it all again because i loved it so much yeah i've been trade waiting this one too i'm really excited about it yeah it's good stuff um speaking of stuff we're excited about there's new comics coming out this wednesday february 28th um and we'll talk about what we're excited about kara what are you looking forward to this wednesday okay so DC Comics is releasing uh, the first issue in a six-issue mini called Mira, Queen of Atlantis. And they're like, so they're billing it as the first time that they've given Mira her own title. And I'm like, how did it take you until 2018 to give Mira her own title? She's so awesome. (laughs) Mira is... um, Aquaman's like um they're usually married in the comics or they're dating they're just it's like one of DC's OTPs but um because Aquaman (laughs) gets so little play Mira also gets very little play and they kind of 
I feel like they change her origin story all the time, depending on like what decade it is and what DC thinks women are up to at that point in time. Um, and so the last time I really read about her was when uh, DC was doing their whole new 52 thing and rebooting all their titles. And I gave the first volume of Aquaman a shot and they were making Mira like, I think a spy who was supposed to like take down Atlantis from the inside. And, but they like fell in love and her allegiance has shifted and da, 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 da. And I'm like, okay, but, and before that, I remember her when, um, like pre new 52 when DC was doing their whole, like, wait, there's more than just green lanterns. There's lantern colors all over the spectrum. And the red ones are the rage lanterns. And Mira got a red ring and was like super angry and ragey. And I just don't know why DC really wants their like high ranking women to be ragey. Cause it's either like you're super ragey or you're one of like the pink lanterns who are all about love or whatever. I'm like, why only those two extremes? Like, why can't any of these women be like indigo lanterns or blue lanterns? They're just like, like Supergirl's a red lantern too. And I'm like, okay, I understand she's a teenager. And like, I was a teenage girl and I had anger issues too, but like, really? Anyway, <laughs> that's a tangent. But so Mira's finally getting her own title. And like, I'm excited because she definitely has deserved her own title for way longer than this. And the setup seems to be she's the queen of Atlantis in exile and Aquaman's I think half brother or stepbrother is like coming for her crown. So she's got to deal with that. And I would be way more interested in this title, except the creative team is dudes. And as you can tell from my irritation in all of my tangents up till this point, I'm not entirely confident that men at DC writing women is always the best idea so I do wish that they had put a woman on this book as the lead artist or the lead writer, because I do think it would have made it even more interesting and appealing to me as a comics reader. But anyway, that's my pick. My hesitant, <laughs> hesitant pick. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to say, it is surprising that she hasn't gotten a series before this, but I guess if she's going to play a role in the upcoming Aquaman movie, they want to you know get her exposed a little bit more so it makes sense but it is surprising that there wasn't at least another mini before that right because i thought she's a pretty popular character i know oh my god she's like every time they make one of those sexy statues she's one of them like people know who she is <laughs> oh yeah she's one of the sexy statues i know her yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like you know clearly they expose her in different elements of stuff like she's one of the dc bombshells like she's been yeah. in stuff she was even on the animated series like people know who she is and i'm just like <laughs> Give her more. Give her more. She deserves more. She's a queen. Dang it. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Brian, what about you? What are you excited for? Uh, for me this week, I'm excited about uh, Buffy season 11, Giles number one. Um, it's from what I understand. I just found out that this was coming out today, Sunday, the 25th. <laughs> so I don't know a whole lot about it, but it sounds like Giles, the librarian from the show has been trapped in the body of like a teenager. And has to, like, enroll in high school and solve a monster mystery. And that's... I'm just a sucker for that sort of, like, body swap comedy drama stuff. That and I also just thought... I always thought that Giles was an interesting character. He's the the stodgy old librarian who you later discover used to be, like, 
kind of a punk warlock who maybe like tread in the dark side a little too much and there's an episode where he you know they don't say it but he definitely banged Buffy's mom (laughs) (laughs) I've seen like half of an episode of Buffy ever but I remember (laughs) Giles being the highlight for me so like everything you're saying just tallies with my initial impression yeah it's uh it's definitely gonna be weird might not be good but I'm definitely (laughs) excited for it I much much like with uh, with your Mira book, I, I believe that it can be good, and I'm hoping that it will be good. What about you, Paul? <laughs> well, I know my pick is going to be good because I've enjoyed all the books, books leading up to it. It's the Doom Patrol JLA special number one, the finale of the Milk Wars uh, DC and Young Animal crossover. I picked the first issue, I think a couple weeks ago on the show, and I really, really enjoyed it. And I think what is so interesting about this book, maybe not the story so much, but the the way that the creators are just going full on metafictional playing in the sandbox with DC continuity and characters. Um, the story here is that there's a company called Retco, which is taking characters from across the multiverse, repackaging them for different markets and putting them out there. So you have... Instead of Batman, you have a priest named Father Bruce. Instead of the Superman character, you have Milkman Man. Wonder Woman is now Wonder Wife. They're all these homogenized, good versions of characters. And um, the Doom Patrol get caught up in it, along with uh, Mother Panic and Cave Carson and Shade the Changing Girl. And this is the sort of conclusion of the whole Milk Wars crossover, written by Steve Orlando, uh, who's done a fantastic job with that first issue, the... JLA and Doom Patrol crossover, art by Dale Eaglesham, whose stuff I always really like. And this is going to lead into, I guess, like a soft reboot of the Young Animals series, because all the first, um, I guess the first uh, arc or the first volume of all those books wrapped up. We have the Milk Wars one shots, and then they're going to sort of do a relaunch with slightly different versions of the books. So I don't know what that means totally. And a lot of the Milk Wars stuff is me going in blind and not knowing exactly what to expect, but I just enjoy sort of the playfulness of it all. So I'm excited to see how they wrap it up. Well, for my part, I'm excited to never hear the term Milk Wars ever again. (laughs) (laughs) I will have to say that um, I don't drink milk normally, and I understand why reading these books. It doesn't make milk very appealing, since milk is what is... uh, it's milk from psychic cows, which is giving people all sorts of crazy hallucinations. So it's maybe a, a, a good anti-dairy screed going on in these books, which Wait, I is it, appreciate. Is it kind of like how in the movie Logan, they're like, oh, we've been putting like de-mutant stuff in all the food you've been <laughs> eating. And that's why there are no more mutants. Like that kind of level of badness or just like people are hallucinating? Uh, well, no, it, it is it is bad because it's people hallucinating, also forgetting who they are. So part of it is in the first issue, like the JLA show up and they don't remember that they're the JLA. They're these weird, homogenized, leave it to beaver, 50 style versions of themselves. So having Lobo show up as, you know, just Carl Lobo, your local neighborhood watch uh, officer is pretty funny. <laughs> but... <laughs> But the idea that it's the the milk they've been forced to drink is making them forget that they're really the Justice League of America. Weird. Yeah. Oh, it's very weird. And I love it because of that. So (laughs) 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 great stuff. So that's what we're excited for this week. And uh, we'll take a quick break here and then come back to discuss our book of the month from the Goodreads group, Paper Girls, Volume 1. 
before we jump into the main discussion for this episode, we want to remind everybody that the Emerald City Comic Con is coming up this weekend in Seattle, Washington, and we will be there. Yay. We, meaning uh, me, Kara, Tia, Mike, and Xander, the one and only Xander, will be there in person. So if you happen to be at the Emerald City Comic Con this weekend, come say hi. We'd love to meet you. We'll have some free stickers and buttons uh, to give away if anybody comes says hi. And um, you can follow along with all of our antics and shenanigans on Twitter. We'll be using the hashtag IRCBECCC. Easy to remember. Um, so hopefully we run into some fans there and uh, we'll have a good time. And we'll tell you all about it when we come back. So with that out of the way, let's talk about Paper Girls. This was the pick for February on our Goodreads group. And this is by Brian K. Vaughn writing Cliff Chiang on art with colors by Matt Wilson. Um, and this is my second time reading this first volume of Paper Girls. I've been reading right from issue one. And I have to say, I'm glad this book got picked to discuss because I had forgotten an awful lot of all this Amen. first volume. So yeah. <laughs> getting the chance to go back and reread it was really fun. So uh, maybe we'll just start going around with our initial impressions of the book, and then we can kind of dive into some uh, reader comments. So um, I don't know, Brian, why don't why don't you start? What did you think? Yeah, well, I, I started reading Paper Girls when it first came out. Uh, I was intrigued by the, the 80s aesthetic of it all. And then the time travel stuff kicked in, and I was hooked for... I don't know, probably 14 issues, 15 issues. I don't know how many issues are out now exactly, but I dropped off eventually. I just, I ran out of money and, <laughs> and, and this book was not high enough on the list to stay, but going back and rereading it, I'm kind of regretting that because I, I had forgotten about, you know, the, some of the stuff that gets set up in these early issues, like the, <laughs> with Heck and Naldo and they're sort of like teenager rebellion against the old timers or whatever they call the adults. I had completely <laughs> forgotten that was a thing. And going back and rereading it makes me wish that I had kept up because, you know, what if that comes back? So I think that I'm going to be <laughs> making a trip to my library or more likely my library's digital app and trying to catch up with the, uh, the trades. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess to back up a little bit slightly here, it's very hard to explain what this book is. Maybe that's why I'm I'm avoiding trying to give too much away because I think part of the experience of reading Paper Girls is really sort of diving in cold and trying to make sense of it all. I got a crack and, at uh, it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So this was my second time reading the issues that were collected in Paper Girls Volume 1. I was reading the singles when they were coming out and it was interesting reading them as single issues spaced out over, I don't even think it was on a monthly schedule. I think it was like every other month or something. Mm -hmm. And then reading it all together as a trade. And the thing that I remembered before doing the reread most solidly was the first issue, which kind of sets everything up nicely for you to dive in, like you said. So <laughs> we're set up with meeting these four girls who are about 12 years old who are running their paper route in the early morning hours of November 1st following Halloween night. And the thing that kept me interested in this series, despite all of the weirdness that happens, is 
the girls because they all have such strong personalities and instantly I wanted to be friends with all of them and I think Mm -hmm. that's where the strength of this book is it's the the characters that you're following and everything else is just kind of a nice bonus yeah yeah I think the characterization really stands out and I think a lot of the book is an homage to Steven Spielberg or Joe Dante films of the 80s you know we have a group of teenagers um, faced with some sort of bizarre circumstances they have to figure out. It definitely feels like an homage to that type of stuff. But like those movies, I think what keeps you coming back to it is the characterization and their interaction between the paper girls. They don't get along right away and they have to figure each other out and learn what each other's you know uh, strengths and weaknesses are and all that. And I think that's what makes it really engaging. You feel like you're a part of the group learning that along with the other members or the other characters. Yeah, it reminded me in a in a very strange way of playing D anD D with my friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, just because like each of these characters sort of fits a a trope or a role uh, at the beginning, and they all kind of come to defy their tropes over time. Mm-hmm. But I definitely got that idea of like you know clearly Mac is the fighter, and then uh, we have you know KJ is the rogue and. <laughs> I really enjoyed how these characters are so self-sufficient. Like, my mom would never have let me run a paper route at the age of 12, like, in the early mornings, even though we lived in, like, a really safe town. It would just not have happened. And here these girls are like, oh, my dad keeps a gun in our trailer. Let's go get that. Oh, my dad taught me how to drive in the parking lot. Let's steal the car and take this other person to the hospital. And I'm like what? <laughs> like, But I think this is kind of a, a recurring theme in a lot of these stories about um, preteens or teenagers that, you know, it's definitely the whole point of the Harry Potter series is that, you know, kids are not dumb. Kids are super resourceful and super driven. And given extreme circumstances, a lot of them will survive. So I think this is a nice, like, addition to that kind of um, genre of fiction where, yeah, the kids do kind of know what's going on more than the adults and they are better equipped to handle the situation, even though they don't realize it. Yeah. It's being thrown into that situation, kind of figuring out that you know what to do or like you have an idea. And that is a reoccurring theme, I think, in this story where the adults are the people to not be trusted. And that comes up in a different way as the story goes on, where if I have it right, you have sort of a battle across time between the old timers and teenagers. And the battle lines aren't very clear at first, but it seems to be, at least in this first volume, that the the paper girls, the main characters, kind of trust the teenagers more than the adults. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, wanna... And there's also this... Oh, and I want to say there's also this thing, too, like the teenagers that they trust are teenagers from the future, when they run into teenagers from their own time, it's a very different experience. Because right off in that first issue, they run into, I think, some kids that are a couple of grades older than them, and they're it, they seem like bad kids, or at least they're scared of them in a weird way. And um, I think that that the the politics of high school and junior high come into play there. It's kind of curious to see how that plays out against the larger story. Yeah, there's definitely like a you can't trust teenagers vibe that the kids <laughs> have in the first issue. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to dive in a little bit more to what we were talking about. The 
teen archetypes. Um, we had a comment on our Goodreads thread for this book from Daniel, who went into it in terms of the art, said, uh, Cliff Chang's art is simply amazing. All the characters are made very differently, but definitely fits some of the 80s teen archetypes. The coloring really gives this sci-fi vibe and can give a disoriented vibe, which fits the overall vibe. Um, which I thought was was very true. Like you, you feel like these characters are familiar, and through cues from the artist, you kind of know who they are before they even open their mouths. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, like even seeing you know the field hockey stick coming out of was it KJ's backpack? I, yeah. Instantly, I'm like, oh, you're the one I don't mess with because you're the one running like two hours of practice every day. <laughs> Carrying a yeah. stick around like a club. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing that immediately grabbed me for this book and has kept me reading it issue to issue is Cliff Chang's art. As much like the story, there are times in this series as I've been reading it in issues where I don't really understand what's going on at all. And it's the art that kind of keeps me buying it month to month and i'm glad daniel mentioned the coloring because the coloring is fantastic as well i mean matt wilson's a great colorist but he's using a very unconventional palette in this book right from the first issue there's lots of pinks and electric blues it's not quite neon but it's not quite pastel they're kind of in between it but it doesn't feel retro it's not using those sort of bright colors as a shorthand for 80s culture it's like it's almost using them as a disorienting effect for as the story, you know, goes on. Which I think also works with the fact that, you know, the story opens in the early hours of the morning when most people aren't awake. It is a weird time <laughs> to be awake. And so, kind of, you know, pastels and neons are both color palettes that are heavily associated with the 80s. And going between that is kind of, I think, building off the fact that it's not quite dawn. It's not quite the middle of the night. Things are going to be mm-hmm. not as clear as you see them in the daytime. And I think the colors added to that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. That sort of in-between time, you know, when things are transitioning. A lot like being a teenager, you know? A lot like time so, traveling. Exactly. <laughs> a lot like time traveling. <laughs> I think our teen years are a little bit different. Yours and mine. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I wanted to bring up another uh, comment from our Goodreads thread um, from Robert, who said, I only wish that when an arc is complete, more of the questions would be answered. I'm not sure what makes the ending of volume one the end of an arc. We are left with only questions and damn few answers, which I heavily agree with. I got to Mm. the end of this volume. I was like, oh, was this where this arc ended? Really? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. Yeah, and I'm I'm somewhat hesitant to say this, but I don't think it gets any more clear as the story goes on. Um having read up until the most recent issue, the story arcs there are clearly set pieces as the time travel becomes more important to the story. There's different things that are happening can kind of tell this is one set of stories or one set of issues, but the overall question of what the fuck's going on, I don't think it ever really gets much more clear. And I kind of like that, personally. I don't know. I think that's really engaging. But I can understand how others might have different mileage on that. Yeah, and I think one of the big things is that there's no return to equilibrium between arcs. And I think that 
you know especially like a lot of superhero books have sort of trained us to expect that you know they they defeat the villain and they save the day and then everybody goes out for pizza and then (laughs) everyone kind of returns to their normal lives but the kids and paper girls as far as i know never get to return to their normal lives it's just kind of you know yeah like one right one yeah. one bit of bullshit gets interrupted by the next bit of bullshit and you just kind of <laughs> try to hang on i think that knowing now what you guys have said about as this series continues you don't really get all the answers that you want um i i do really like stories where the creative team trusts me and doesn't feel the need to like force feed me answers all the time i think that if it was maybe a different creative team I would be really unsure about all the plot uncertainty that's happening in this series, but because I have read more of Brian K. Vaughn's stuff, I trust him as an artist to take me where he wants to go and that I won't be like totally fed up with whatever the the answer is or if there is no answer. Um, and I just wonder if I would, I would give as much benefit to the doubt as like to maybe someone who hadn't had a track record of stories where they trust the reader. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Cause I was trying to think of how this relates to other Brian K. Vaughn stories I've read. And um, it seems very similar to why the last man in that sense, where it's a large story and you kind of know that it's going to wrap up at some point, but that's not really clear how that's going to take place. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I find paper girls, honestly for me a little bit more appealing than saga but saga had that same thing for a while too where it's like yeah this is a big story and it keeps moving from place to place without ever really you know coming to a small conclusion then moving on it doesn't really wrap up nicely before moving to the next part but that so i think that's a trope that he works with really well and i think this is probably for me the best example of brian Kavon doing that mm-hmm. So I think we've all read the single issues and now the trade version. So what are some of the reading experience differences that you guys think are the most obvious? Well, I still can't decipher some of those hieroglyphic uh, writings that the characters speak in, the characters from the future. That's still not clear to me. Although going back and rereading it, I really, really enjoyed the sort of new speak that the old timers use yes there's like this sort of truncated like text message tweet speak that's evolved over time you can tell it's basically brian Kavon saying like oh this is how people communicate via text now what if that becomes spoken language later on and that's a really fascinating idea and it's very awkward but you can kind of read it as opposed to there's another written language in the book that i cannot make um, heads or tails of at all yeah, I mean it's it's got its own symbolic alphabet. So whatever whatever they're saying, I don't think we're supposed to understand. Right, right. Or we're supposed to let the art and the context carry the conversation. <laughs> I just like that they they stick with that. It, it's an interesting hook at the beginning, but as the series goes on, it it still pops up, and it's never really. At least maybe if I did some linguistic heavy reading or some heavy work there and try to figure it out, but you don't need to, like you said, based on Cliff Chang's art, tells the story right there. I think uh, for, for me, when I was reading the single issues, um, there was more of a feeling of 
the weirdness because there was so much time between reading issues and I didn't necessarily go back and reread. So when I entered a new issue, I was like, oh, right, this happened and this happened. But I was just kind of in the moment with each issue, Mm -hmm. which did work because everything that happens is so random and disjointed anyways. And I also really enjoyed the experience of the slightly meta metatextual um, letters page that the book had. Yes. Or has. Yes. That's, I wonder if that's in the collected edition because that's something that feels so cool about the single issues where each issue ends with a letters page, but it's about uh, what's the name of the organization I'm blanking right now. Let me see here. It's like the, it's the, the American Newspaper Delivery Guild. <laughs> so it's basically teenagers or young uh, paper boys and paper girls writing in letters to this fictional organization that's all about paper delivery. And that's it's such like it's I don't want to say antiquated, but it's such of a time, you know, being Throwback. a paper boy or a paper girl, you know. So I just love that they've kind of run with that and. I need to go back and kind of read those letter columns more closely because I kind of skimmed through them. might be fun to go back and reread those as close as I read the story the second time. And if you do go back to uh, issue one, they have the deliverers of the month as well, which are just uh, (laughs) like middle school pictures of the creators. Yeah. Cute. (laughs) Uh, They're adorable. (laughs) Cute little kids. (laughs) I, uh, I liked the letter page because it made me feel more like I said like a more like in the moment Mm -hmm. which for reading a book that hints at or like is about time travel I thought was super appropriate because it does make me feel like I grew up in the 90s but this like from what I've seen and heard of 80s media this book kind of took that and made me feel nostalgic for a time that I wasn't actually alive for so uh, so I thought that the letters page really helped to accomplish that. Um, and at least in the, the digital library version of Paper Girls Volume 1 that I read, they did not include those letters. And so reading the story then became a more seamless story experience. But I felt like I lost being in that zone that I think the creative team wanted me to be in when reading. Yeah, and I think... Much like I think Saga did kind of something similar where the Brian K. Vaughn does make sure that there is an incentive to buy single issues, whether it's something like that, like a letters column. Um, so you do have a reason to go back and read that stuff or at least try to get it in single issues. It's a different experience. Doesn't mean it's a better experience, but it's a different experience, I guess. Speaking to the, the 80s setting, which I I grew up in the 80s and I definitely recognize a lot of the references being made here and it is nostalgic in a sense but it never feels like that's a crutch like that's not the most interesting part of the story is them recalling that stuff it's used to give you context of what these characters lives are like um, particularly when I think Erin the sort of new girl in the group whenever she has a dream in the book it's filled with like references to you know, mid 80s culture. And like, it's not retro and it's not nostalgic really, but it just lets you know, like, this is where her head is at because this is the time she's living. There's like one panel where she's having a dream and she's standing in the pumpkin patch from It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. And just a little visual clue like that. It's like, yes, this is a reference to a particular thing and it's somewhat retro, but it is, gives you an insight into the character's mind mindset at the time. She's also- Ready Player One, this is not. Uh, Definitely not. 
She's also talking <laughs> to President Reagan in that dream sequence. Did you notice exactly. that when uh, when they cut back to her like being kind of passed out and out of it in the car, she mumbles Reagan, but it's just like a stream of consonants that so you can't really tell unless you're looking for it? No, I didn't notice oh, wow, that. I didn't notice that. Yeah, I saw cool. that. I was like, nice, well played. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, with the the whole 80s aesthetic of, of it all, I wonder how this book would have done if it had come out the in 2016 as opposed to 2015. Uh, because we got uh, Stranger Things Season 1 came out in, <laughs> I think, July of 2016. So if this had come out on the heels of that that fall, I wonder if it would have been a more mainstream phenomenon than it turned out to be. Or if people would have reacted to it by saying, oh, way to capitalize on Stranger Things. Oh, that's entirely possible, too. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that was the reference I used to sell the book to people. They were asking, you know, what I was reading. I'm like, well, I'm reading Paper Girls. If you like Stranger Things, you'd like it, which I I always hate doing that because I think it sells things short because this book, in terms of pacing and I think what it's trying to do story-wise is very different from Stranger Things. Absolutely. Um, You know. But I can definitely see these sort of uh, the connections there, the sort of superficial connections. Yeah, some people just want, you know, the feeling that something gives them. Like, um, I'm just thinking, like, I really enjoy watching the extended versions of the Lord of the Rings movies, not because the extended versions are necessarily better than the theatrical versions, but but because I like prolonging my time in Middle Earth as much as possible. <laughs> so this, like, maybe if this fits that feel that people get from Stranger Things, it would be a good recommendation if they just want to kind of prolong that feeling. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, I guess. So that I guess instead of uh, the upside down, you have time travel. You also have giant pterodactyls flying around in Paper Girls, uh, which I I really I can't believe we haven't mentioned until now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was hoping we would at least talk about that. There, what I th- find so interesting going back and rereading this is that the pacing is very fast. Like th- by the end of issue five, I was like, "Wow, all of that happened in the first volume." You know, I was trying to remember what had happened before I went back to reread it. I was like, "They're not really going to get too far." So it's just the first volume of the book, but they do so much in these first five issues, and the cliffhanger at the end of issue five, I think, is a fantastic twist, and it's something that you want to see a time travel story do and they get there right away. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. The idea of like interacting with other versions of, of your characters from different points of their lives is, is very interesting. <laughs> yeah. I have a question for you guys. Cause I remember when I first read, I forget if it's, the, I think it's the first issue where, um, the dudes who are wrapped up and stuff and you don't quite see that they're teenagers yet. Uh, drop a piece of technology that has a little apple on it and Aaron picks it up and when I first read it I was like oh that's so cool but so gimmicky all at the same time and (laughs) I couldn't I I feel like doing the reread with all of these issues in a row kind of gave me a better sense of these teenagers as technology scavengers for some reason and so Mm -hmm. then instead of that being kind of like a whoa look it's apple thing it became more of a oh these guys are really just collecting everything and here's something that a modern audience would recognize what did you think about that moment 
Yeah, I remember the first time reading that first issue, thinking that was a kind of a cheap cliffhanger in a way, because like, oh, this is going to turn into, you know, a story about Apple or a story about technology. And as you said, going back and rereading it, that's less important than the idea that the teenagers that they run into are scavengers and they're just grabbing stuff. So the idea of the Apple, the idea of it being a piece of Apple technology is less important than the symbolism of it being an Apple, because at a later point, one of the characters just makes an offhand comment about the tree of knowledge. So it becomes the symbol of the Apple rather than the piece of technology itself. And on my first reread, I thought it was just kind of a cheap, you know, a cheap uh, reference mm-hmm. in a weird way. So it makes more sense on the second read, or it's more interesting, I guess. Yeah, it's it's the that's the second time that the Apple symbolism comes up. But I think there's four or five instances throughout the there's first five issues. There's that weird old dude wearing that The Apple that Records shirt. shirt. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, after Aaron has been shot, there's a scene, there's a shot, like a panel of an apple, like a blackened apple with a bullet hole in it. And uh, her, right. her dream at the very beginning of the first issue is also uh, they're mentioning uh, you must never eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> yeah, that's a it's a very interesting through line, I think, throughout these issues. Yeah, and definitely one that I only noticed on the second reread. So, yeah. Um, I I know that reading these first five issues for me meant that I'm going to have to go back into my archives here and dig up the rest of the back issues to keep going because, you know, as we're saying, we're noticing a lot of stuff on the, on the reread that I completely forgot. So it's definitely encouraging me to go back and reread the rest of the series. Uh, what about you? Are you going to go back and uh, keep reading? Or rereading, I guess. Oh yeah, I've got um, volumes two and three downloaded right now. I'm ready to go. Like the second <laughs> we're done today, <laughs> I'm going right Perfect. into them. Yeah, yeah, same. I've still got my long box out from pulling out the first five issues, so I'm probably just going to haul out the rest of them and and go back through. And I think we kind of touched on this earlier that you know with Brian K. Vaughn's work, it is a totally different experience whether you're reading month to month or whether you're trade waiting, but mm-hmm. The advantage of trade waiting is that more of the pieces come together. And I just remember, like, you know, I've I've read most of Saga month to month. And then going back and doing a reread, I'm like, oh, I understand now. And Why the Last Man, I just read the entire series, like, trade by trade, one after the mm-hmm. other. And I cannot imagine reading one of his series that long month to month because there would just be too much that was lost. <laughs> so I guess what I'm saying here is like, Brian K. Vaughn, single issues, thumbs up for the experience, trades, thumbs up for actually understanding what the heck is happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, that raises an interesting point because I think, as we've been saying, the experience of reading single issues versus trades is very different for, for his work. That's not always the case. I feel there are some creative teams and comic writers that you can kind of see that they're writing for trade. You see the seams between arcs and you sort of see the pacing, how it's set up to just fit into a, into a trade. And I think what makes Brian K. Vaughn's work interesting, at least, you know, Paper Girls and probably Saga especially, is that those sort of nuts and bolts are harder to see. You know, I didn't realize going back reading it at issue five ended volume one in that way because i think reading it month to month i don't see the sort of natural story beats 
as clearly as I see from other writers. So I think his work, especially the difference between singles and trades is much, much different. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, you're right. I can't really think of another creator off the top of my head where there is such a huge difference between singles and the trade. But I mean, I think it does speak to the consistency of the book that Cliff Chang's art is perfect issue to issue. It never feels rushed. They never had to fill in. Obviously, they really don't do that, I guess, for most image series anyway. But his art style and the coloring, it really does also create a through line where you don't see, you know, changes from arc to arc or volume to volume as clearly because they're there's a continuity across the board with the art and the story. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Speaking of Cliff Chang's art again, can we talk about those two double page spreads of when it, I think it's Tiffany gets attacked by that tentacle box thing and (laughs) her life flashes before her eyes and her life is playing the same video game over and over again. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Was it Arkanoid? I think was the game. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) That's, and that's gonna really be me. Like zero dialogue, <laughs> but you see exactly what's going on, and then you like she's having an existential crisis about this flashback for the rest of the volume, and you're like, "I was there, I know." Like, <laughs> you're gonna be okay, I promise. <laughs> like when she was like, "Why didn't I just stop at level twenty eight when I was stuck?" And I'm like, "Girl, <laughs> you're gonna be describing relationships like that in the future. Don't worry about it." <laughs> yeah i mean moments like that were interesting to go back and reread because as the series goes on these characters really do grow and change and you kind of those their changes and their changes in attitude are seeded very early in the series so i think that's again speaks to brian k vaughn's sort of vision for the series like right away is like this is how these characters going to change you know 20 issues down the road i'm going to introduce little things to hint at that right away so there is that, that same sense of continuity. and um, But I did really like the the coloring on that two-page spread where each panel was almost a different tone you know, of color, even though it's basically the same thing, a character playing a video game. You got the sense of passages of time just through the, the color almost, as well as the art. Yeah, and all the, all the little like background cues of like, in this one there's like a bottle of champagne in the background, so you know it's around New Year's <laughs> and all that stuff. Um, speaking of Brian, um, sorry, speaking of... Chang's artwork as well I like the the design of the technology like it feels you know futuristic but it doesn't I don't know something about the way he designs the time travelers outfits you have the scavengers who are wearing like rags versus the other time travelers who have like high-tech suits the time machines themselves that they get into there's a that sort of you know thing where it's like yeah it's futuristic technology but it looks practical you know it doesn't just look futuristic and um, smooth. There's a sense of uh, practicality and lived inness to the design. Yeah, the time machines are also very gross. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they're, they're this weird, yes. like biomechanical nastiness going on. Yeah, when the girls first <laughs> encounter that one, and they think it's a tarp draped over it, and they're like, oh, "It feels like skin," and they're like, "Okay, ew. no, we need to leave. Like, this is where we all die." I'm yeah. Like, ew, ew. But what a description. <laughs> yes. Very evocative. And then the, the scene where um, there's a time travel sort of mishap that turns into a weird like body horror thing where people's 
two characters are somewhat fused together. Yeah. That's always icky. I mean, that's some David Cronenberg-esque stuff there, which, yeah, I was not expecting. Well, sounds like we're ready to wrap up. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Well, um... <laughs> Well, as we can, as you can probably tell, we enjoyed going back and rereading Paper Girls. We're going to continue to reread Paper Girls. So, thanks to whoever suggested this on the Goodreads group. I'm glad it was the pick of the month. And um, if you have any more thoughts on it, you can head to the Goodreads group and share them there. So that can, conversation will keep going. I think. So, I guess to wrap us up, you can find us on Twitter. Brian, where can you find us on Twitter? Uh, you can find Kara at Kara Zam. You can find Paul at Ohio Polly. You can find me at Brian Head. And you can follow the show at IRCB Podcast. We do retweets. We post links to the episodes. And we do polls, like this past week's poll. Uh, what was the worst comic event? And Secret Wars 2 is leading by an impressive margin right now. <laughs> Burn. Uh, yeah and uh, as I mentioned earlier follow our Twitter this weekend we'll be at the Emerald City Comic Con like I said hashtag I-R-C-B-E-C-C-C I think I got all the letters in there you got all the C's Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, and you know this episode is about our Goodreads group and I've mentioned it before but it is a great resource for sharing things you've read keeping track of things you've read and uh, keeping the conversation going so head over there and don't forget to sign up and enter for the free raffle for the $10 gift certificate. You can also find our show notes for each episode at ircbpodcast.com. We also have a comic book creator pronunciation guide for any Brian, uh, for any comic book creator names you have trouble pronouncing. We're trying to figure it out. we got a list over there. Rate and subscribe and help people find us. We love expanding the conversation, so tell your friends. And email the show, ircb at destroythecybe.org. That's ircb at destroythecyborg, but you put a dot before the org. Infinity Shred is the best. They do our music. They do all the great music for our show. Uh, Xander is just a cool dude for real. He is a wizard forever. And he edits the show. Uh, And in conclusion, thank you. We'll see you next time.